Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms. Well, as we said earlier, we have the, uh, the remnant here because the summer is here and we are all on vacation enjoying a break, enjoying a rest. And over the summer, last year, we did something. We just decided to take a break from our study through Philippians and we studied the Psalms. Um, they are uh, more kind of standalone. They are a unit together, but they are more standalone than our sermon series through, the, uh, through Philippians or through uh, the book of John. And since people are hit and miss over the summer, we decided, you know what, let's just take a break from a series and let's move to just kind of a, a standalone message every time, but let's go through uh, in an expositional way, going through a book, going through a chapter, going through a passage. So we decided on a summer through the Psalms, and it was really, really encouraging. It was instructive. It, uh, I heard from a lot of you that it was a, a great series, good feedback. And then specifically, we, we hardly ever do sermon discussion, and we decided to do that last summer, and that proved to be uh, just really good for our own souls and unifying for our body as a, as a group. So we decided let's do it again. Let's do it again this summer. I make no guarantees whether we're going to do it again next summer, but let's do it again this summer. Let's be encouraged by God's word. There are 150 psalms, so we won't run out of psalms to do over the summers for a while. Um, It's an enjoyable book. So I wanted to just kind of give us a little bit of a background again for the book of Psalms, and then we'll dive in this morning to Psalm 119. Uh, Psalm 119 is where we're going to be. Music. Music is all over the Bible. In fact, if you turn in your Bible kind of anywhere, if you just flip through your Bible, you will find sections, many sections of your Bible that look like this. They're not just line after line after line. They're, they're coupled. They're, it's a different format. It's not prose. It's not narrative. It's poetry. That's music. It's all over the Bible. Um, as early as Exodus 15 with Moses Uh, singing a song with his sister after he crosses the Red Sea. In Judges, one of my favorite songs, this is just uh, why you were lent to, to, or why you were led to sing this song after doing this act. Uh, But Deborah and Barak sing a song. They write a song together after they slaughter a bunch of people. So uh, maybe that ushers up singing, I guess. Hannah cries out in song in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Not only in the Old Testament, it's the New Testament as well. Luke, uh, in, in the Gospel of Luke, Mary sings her Magnificat. There's music everywhere. There's music all over the Bible, but there is no book that is more pregnant with music than the Psalms. The Psalter, if you will. This book is just the hymn book of Israel. It's an amazing book. It's actually quoted more than any other book of the Bible in the Bible. The book of Psalms is quoted more than any other book of the Bible in the Bible. Second to the book of Psalms is Isaiah, but it's a distant second because Psalms is quoted 15% more times than Isaiah in the Bible. The name Psalms comes from a Greek word, which just means the plucking of strings. So it has to do with music. It was written some 3,000 years ago. I want to just give you some background info on the book of Psalms. It's an amazing book. It's the largest book in the Bible, chapter-wise, containing 150 chapters. It's the second, large, or the second largest book other than Psalms, uh, chapter-wise, is Isaiah, with 66 chapters. So 150 in Psalms, 66 in Isaiah. Psalm 119, which we're going to look at today, is the largest chapter in the Bible. 
It's a unit containing 176 verses. And that verse total, 176 verses, is more verses than many books of the Bible. One chapter is more than many books of the Bible. Psalm 117 is the shortest chapter in the Bible. It only contains two verses. Somebody might preach on that this summer. If you have a busy schedule and you don't want a lot of text to have to prepare for, Psalm 117 is right up your alley. Two verses, that's it. You can dive in so deep into that verse. That's awesome. Psalm 117, this is really cool. It's the middle chapter of the Bible. So there's 1,189 chapters in the Bible. 1,189 chapters in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And Psalm 117 is the middle chapter. If you cut those chapters in half, it's the middle chapter. Psalm 118, verse 8, is the absolute center of the Bible. There are 31,173 verses contained in the entire scriptures. And Psalm 118, verse 8, is the middle verse of the entire Bible. And I love it. It's a verse that you should memorize. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. What a great verse to just have as the middle, the epicenter of the entire Bible. What about the authors? Who wrote Psalms? The book is written primarily by David. He, a lot of people just think David wrote the whole thing. He wrote a lot of them. At least 73, maybe 75 are written. There are two psalms that are kind of more of a guess uh, as to whether David wrote them. But if it is 75, that's a good chunk of the psalms. It's half of, half of what's happening in the psalms. But there are other authors. Solomon writes some. Asaph writes some. Moses writes one. The sons of Korah write several. Ethan writes one. Ethan, uh, that's where we get our son's name from Psalm 89. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known God's faithfulness to all generations. That's my prayer for my son. And so we named him after Ethan, Ethan the Ezraite in Psalm 89. Um, we'll actually study that one this summer. Because there are so many authors in the book of Psalms, the dating of this book, when was it written, is hard to find out. The first song, or psalm, chronologically, is undisputedly Psalm 90. It is written by Moses, probably towards the end of the wilderness wanderings, which would be around 1400 B.C. Moses wrote the earliest psalm, Psalm 90. The majority, though, were written around 1000 B.C. And the last psalm composed chronologically is more than likely Psalm 126. It's thought to have been written after the time of Israel's Babylonian exile and captivity. And so it's probably around 500 B.C., maybe even later, 430 B.C., probably written by Ezra. So you have 1400 B.C. to 400 B.C., um, spanning the date and the time of this book. So that means this book spans 1,000 years of writing, several authors. It's an amazing book. Uh, It's divided into five separate books. You'll see those headings as you go through. Uh, They mirror the five books of Moses. So the book of Psalms is actually... Um, divided into five books. And these songs are just that. They're songs set to music. Not the music we would think of. It's a different kind of music, but still it was set to music. And these songs were made to rhyme. But again, not the rhyming that we would think of. Not phonetically, not not phonically, not rhyming, you know, uh, Dr. Seuss kind of rhyming. And I've always loved why that is. Why God chose to not have the book of Psalms rhyme phonetically or phonically. The reason why is because then only one language group would understand 
the genius behind the rhyme scheme. Only one language group, because rhyming, if it's phonetically, it has to do with sounds and the way that words sound. So it's rhyming, but it's not phonetically. It's rhyming logically. It's called Hebrew parallelism. It's a logical rhyme scheme, and it's, it fits in any language. And I love that because God, the understatement of the, of the world, of the universe, is God's smart, right? God is smart. He knew exactly what he was doing when he penned a book of songs that are rhyming. He decided, you know what, let's put these rhymes in a logical rhyme scheme because I desire people from every tribe, tongue, language, people group. I want everyone to come to saving knowledge of, of myself. And so everybody must know the awesome rhyme schemes that are going on here, the, the helpful intellectual rhyme schemes that are happening here. It doesn't depend on language. It depends on um, logic, and it's an amazing, amazing truth. But they are set to music. When we think of music, we think of an expression. We think of expressing ourselves, and that is the case. But music is also impressive. It, it's expressive and it's impressions. It, it sends impressions. It gives impressions. We can sing these psalms, and we do sing many of them. We've actually put many of them to our own music. And we can repeat these songs to God out of the overflow of our own hearts, and that's good, and it's an expression. But it's also an impression. They're an impression of God's truth to our hearts. They're expressions and they're instructions. They're meant to teach. Um, We said this last summer, but if you only read the psalms purely for expression... I think that you're reading them incorrectly. They are expressive, but if you only read them purely for the expression, you're missing the instruction. But if you only read the Psalms purely for the instruction and the doctrine, then you're also incorrectly reading the Psalms because they were meant to be expressive. So you have to have both at the same time. The Psalms are instructive and the Psalms are expressive. Instructive and expressive at the same time. Now this makes no sense to us uh, because we don't learn things this way. You remember we talked about if, if you need to know what goes on in a car, which I don't know anything that goes on in a car and its engine. Um, if I wanted to learn, I'd pick up a car that, you know, a book that says Cars for Dummies. Um, inside of that book, you would not open it up and find a song teaching me what's going on in my car. It would just be instruction. We don't learn in the same way um, with normal things in life. But God knew this is a very impressive way to learn. This is a very instructive way to learn. This is something that speaks so much deeper than just prose can do. And so he writes a book of songs to give expression to our faith and to give instruction to our faith. So we find ourselves in Psalm 119. Psalm 119, if you have your Bible, Psalm 119 is where we're going to start. Um, Verse 129 is where we'll actually begin in Psalm 119. So Psalm 119 Verse 129. We looked at this last summer. We looked at one stanza, the verse, uh, verses 1 through 8, the first stanza. So why are we going back to it? Um, number one, because we only looked at the first stanza, so we can go through all the other stanzas here. But number two, because what I want to do is I want to give a broad overview of why we need to believe the Scriptures, why the Scriptures speak for themselves in such a way that we can trust them, what we must do with the Scriptures. We're going to be preaching through the Scriptures, as we normally do here at CBC. We're going to be preaching through the Scriptures. And I just want to make sure that we all have the same understanding of what God's Word is, what it does. We must know how precious the Word of God is. 
And there truly is no better place to turn to than Psalm 119 to see the preciousness of God's word. This psalm was either written by David or Ezra. More than likely it was David, but we'll just say it was the psalmist because we don't know for a a fact. It has 22 sections. It has 315 stanzas and couplets, 176 verses in our English Bible. It is 2,384 words. It would take a little over 15 minutes just to read it. It's longer than 30 books of the Bible. This chapter alone is longer than 30 whole books of the Bible. And the length of this psalm should be uh, impressive to us. It should make an impression upon us because it is a song only about one thing, the Bible. And the writer of this psalm spills a lot of ink talking about the Bible. If you were to think about all the things that God would want to emphasize, if you were to ask, what is the biggest thing that we should emphasize at a church? What's the biggest thing that if God would speak to us, he would want to emphasize? A lot of people would say the love of God, which is true. A lot of people would want to say um, the character of God. Uh, So many different places you could go. But God speaks very clearly in his word, and the biggest section of his word, the biggest chapter that we have, is about one thing, and it's about the word of God. In the Word of God, we understand the love of God. In the Word of God, we understand the character of God. In the Word of God, we understand all of those things. But apart from the Word of God, we have nothing. And so the length of this psalm should just make us pause and say, okay, there's something that God wants to emphasize that I need to listen to. Maybe it's the length of this psalm that in the length of this psalm, God is telling us that we should prioritize something that we don't. We often fail to prioritize. This is a song just like all the other psalms. It's a beautiful poem. It's actually an acrostic. It's eight verses, starting with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, then eight verses with the next letter, then eight verses with the next letter. So it's all an acrostic. It's a beautiful poem. Why the acrostic? Why write it in that way? Um, For beauty, yes. For expression, absolutely. For memorization, Uh, David Livingston, at the age of nine, memorized this entire psalm, at the age of nine, because there are logical rhyme schemes inside of this psalm. And this psalm, properly read and properly understood, will create in us an appetite for the Word of God. That's why we're going to this psalm. Martin Luther said, I have made a covenant with God that he sends me neither visions, dreams, nor even angels. I am well satisfied with the gift of the Holy Scriptures, which give me abundant instructions and all that I need to know, both for this life and for the life which is to come. Can we say that? Can we practically say that? That this book contains everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness in this life and the life to come. I think sometimes we say that with our lips, but then practically we deny it with our lifestyles. When we, when we have an issue, we go to other people first. We go to something else, and we don't turn here. But Martin Luther is right. We don't need anything else. God's Word gives us all of the instruction that we need. And when we gather together, when we meet as a, as a church body, we're just instructing each other and encouraging each other with the Word of God. In this psalm, in Psalm 119, there are eight synonyms for Scripture. I'll just give them to you. They're they're written several different times in different ways. Number one, law. The psalmist uses the word law 25 times. It's God's instruction. It's his teaching. This is the primary term in this chapter. Number two, testimonies. 23 times used by the psalmist. It's God's witness of himself. It's a testimony. This is who I am. 
Number three, precepts, 21 times used. It's an official order from a ruler. This is an official order from God himself. Number four, statutes, used 21 times. comes from a root word that means to engrave. It's a binding, it's an engraved words of God, permanent word of God. It won't fade away. Number five, commandments, 22 times. It's authoritative. This is God's command to us. And he has the right to give us orders because he created us. Uh, I remember Martin Lloyd-Jones said, if you want to create, if you want to command something, you have to create it. Um, And uh, until you have made your own universe, then you need to be content with somebody else commanding you because God made you. God made us. Number six, ordinances, 23 times used by the psalmist. They are ordained by God. There's a purpose behind what he's saying in his word. Number seven, judgments, used six times in uh, decision-making of an all-wise judge. He is an all-wise judge, and he gives us decisions. And then number eight, this is kind of an aside because it's, um, it's kind of using the word to define a word, but word um, word. It's actually used by the psalmist 41 times. Word or words. Just meaning God speaks. These are his very words. And if God spoke these words, then we know because of Titus 1, 2, God cannot lie. Therefore, if these are God's words, which the psalmist is saying that they are, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is inspired by God. It's breathed out by him. 2 Peter chapter 1 says that men were moved by the Holy Spirit to write scripture So we have God speaking. And if God is speaking, then we know that what he's telling us is true. It's right. There is going to be no error in it, otherwise known as the doctrine of inerrancy. We know there's no error in this book. So we have law, precepts, testimony, statutes, commandments, rules, promises, words, all different nuances to deal with God's revelation. He reveals himself. The psalmist also mentions himself in these verses over 300 times. So he doesn't just look at the word, he looks at his relationship to the word, which is what we're going to talk about next week. And he references God in every single verse in this chapter. So the theme of this chapter is the believer's pursuit of a life dominated and controlled by the word of God. It's the believer's pursuit of a life dominated and controlled by the word of God. So to sum up with Psalm 119, out of 1,189 chapters scattered across 66 books, Written over the course of two millennia, Psalm 119 is the longest. There are 22 stanzas, 176 verses. And in 169 of these 176 verses, the psalmist is making a reference to the Word of God. So if you break that down mathematically, 96% of this chapter deals with God's Word. It's all about His Word. And when we truly embrace everything that the Bible says about itself, Then and only then will we believe what we need to believe, we will feel the way that we should feel, and we will do what we need to do. That's why we look at this chapter today. What I want to do is give a broad overview, and this broad overview actually comes from a book. I brought the book. It's a book called Taking God at His Word by Kevin D. Young. Very helpful little book on the Word of God, and his first chapter is pretty much everything we're going to cover today what we need to believe about the Word, what we need to feel about the Word, what we must do because of the Word. So I would encourage you to read that book. If you have any questions about the Word of God, its inerrancy, its authority, it's an amazing little book that tells you what the Bible says about itself, what Jesus uh, believed about the Bible when he was walking on the earth. Um, Very, very helpful little book. 
So let's dive in together. Verse 129 of Psalm 119. I want to read just this one stanza. So this is the pay stanza. In Hebrew, every, um, th- every letter that begins each line here, each verse here, would have started, it's the, the letter pay. Every line would have begun with this letter pay. Some of your Bibles might even have that little, little letter. It's P-E in the English, and uh, there's a little squiggly character there. That's the letter pay. And the psalmist writes, Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul observes them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I opened my mouth wide and panted because I longed for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me after your manner with those who love your name. Establish my footsteps in your word. And do not let any iniquity have dominion over me. Redeem me from the oppression of man, that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant, and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of water, because they do not keep your law. Now, just this one stanza alone, I can think of three reactions to this stanza. Reaction number one would be, yeah, right. It's nice to think that somebody would have such a high respect for this book. It's nice to think that they live that way, but I don't think that, and I'm not going to take the Bible seriously. It's a fantasy book. It's a cute little book with morals. It's just Aesop's fables for religious people. It's a matter of your own interpretation, your own opinion. It's not God's word. The second reaction would be kind of whatever, whatever. Um, maybe you don't have any particular problem to believe in believing that this is the word of God. Maybe you think, yeah, that's fine for you. Maybe it's fine for me. But you don't live according to it, and it's not authoritative in your life. When forced with a decision, you think, you know what? What do I think about it? What does God's word say? And you kind of hold those two together and say they're equal in authority. That's kind of whatever. Take it or leave it. The third reaction would be the exact same as the first in a different way. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's the way I want to feel. The first reaction is, yeah, right. I don't care about that. The third reaction is, yes, yes, this is the response I want to have always when I'm looking at the scriptures. Always. How do we get there? How do we get to having this response? We want it, but we don't always have it. I believe it starts by being convinced that this is the word of God. Being convinced that there are no mistakes in this book. God spoke and he did not speak with a speech impediment. We can hear him clearly in this book. And we must be convinced that this is the most important word in your life. That there is no corruption and it cannot be corrupted. That it will last forever and it's the most relevant thing you can turn to every day. Only when we're convinced of those things can we say what the psalmist is saying here. That's the only time we can say with the psalmist, I long for your word. I love your word. This whole psalm shows us what we must believe, what we must feel, and what we must do with the Word of God. So let's just go through those three points. Number one, what should you believe about the Word of God? What should you believe about the Bible? Uh, Three essential characteristics, three essential beliefs about the Bible taken from the Bible. Number one, God's Word says what is true. You should believe that. You should believe that God's word says exactly what is true. Turn to verse 
42. We're going to move around a lot in this psalm. Turn to verse 42. We will only stay in Psalm 119, but we still have to turn a lot because it's a big chapter. Verse 42. So I will have an answer for him who reproaches me because I trust in your word. Why would you trust in God's word? You trust in it because it's right. It's true. You can trust it. It is trustworthy. Go to verse 142. 142, your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is what? It is truth. It's not an opinion. It's not a nice thought. It is truth. And this is so helpful. I I talk with a lot of people, I meet with a lot of people who wonder about the truthfulness and the trustworthiness of Scripture. And one of the things that that I... interact with them about is, what else would you turn to? What else would you turn to? We can answer all of the objections to the Bible. The Bible proves itself. All of those objections. Some of them are are good objections, but they can be answered. It's true. They can be answered. But one of the questions that I just asked, kind of experientially, is what else would you turn to? Is there anything else in this life that is supremely, authoritatively, always trustworthy? We, we can't even trust pictures anymore because there's Photoshop. You, you never know if what you are seeing is actual reality. Definitely can't trust politicians. I don't think anything's changed there. You can't trust anything. Everything's always, it, it's shape-shifting. It's always moving. There's always some level of dishonesty in it. But not God's word. Turn to verse 89. Verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord... Your word is settled in the heavens. It is stayed. It is engraved. It will not be moved. It never changes. God doesn't speak to us and then go, you know what? That wasn't the best idea. Let me give you another one. God gives us what is true and we can count on it. Verse 96 says that there is no limit to its perfections. It contains nothing that is corrupt and it cannot be corrupted. That's a huge, huge doctrine from God's word. When sharing the gospel with Mormons, we had um, some Mormons that came to our house last Sunday night, and uh, we invited them in, we, we sat down with the Bible, we talked with them for about 45 minutes about the Word of God, and the, the first place that we had to go to is, is this Bible true? I ask, uh, can you be saved with the Bible alone? And they say, no. Why is that? Uh, because in their minds, this book has been corrupted. So that's where we have to go. What did Jesus think about this book? He said, not one Seraph, not one jot or tittle is in the Bible. Not, not one little tiny stroke of a letter, not even a letter, not a, a little stroke of a letter will ever pass away. It cannot be corrupted. It's always been settled in the heavens, and it's always going to be here for man to know, to read, to study, to love, to cherish, and to treasure. There is nothing corrupt in it, and it has never been corrupted, nor will it ever be corrupted. Um, there are over 45,000 New Testament Greek, Greek New Testament manuscripts that we have. Over 45,000. So we can check. We can look. We can document. We can see. Um, do we have the truth? Has it been corrupted? No, it hasn't. Um, the second closest ancient manuscript count that we have to that is Homer's The Iliad and the Odyssey, which is less than 1,500 manuscripts. So less than 1,500 manuscripts, and nobody doubts that. What he said is written down. And then we have over 45,000 manuscripts of just the Greek New Testament. And everybody 
wants to doubt it. But it hasn't been corrupted. God preserves. It's a doctrine called the preservation of God's word. He spoke it. Uh, Since faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, then why would he, in desiring to save us, give us his word and then allow it to become corrupted so that we would not be able to be saved? That's ultimately what would happen. It's not been corrupted. It never will be corrupted. It's fixed in the heavens. Verse 160 Verse 160, all of God's righteous rules endure forever. They never get old. They never wear out. They are true. That's why John 17, 17 says, Jesus is praying, Father, sanctify my disciples in the truth. Your word is that truth. So apart from God's word, not only can we not be saved, in Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, but we can't be sanctified. Sanctify them in your truth. Thy word is truth. So We are sanctified by truth. Since God's word is truth, we couldn't be sanctified if we didn't have God's word. So God's word is true. That's what we must believe about it. It's there all throughout scripture. Again, if you have questions on that, please ask me. Please come talk to me. Ask any of the leadership. They would encourage you with other verses. We don't have time to go to them now. Also pick up that book, Taking God at His Word. It's a very helpful book with the authority of God's word um, and how it has not been corrupted. It is true. Secondly, you must believe that God's word demands what is right. God's word demands what is right. It's not only true, but it demands what is right. Verse 75. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. What you have done and what you have said are righteous. They're right. Verse 86. All your commandments are faithful. They have persecuted me with a lie. Help me. But they're faithful commands. My friends aren't. They're persecuting me. But your words are sure. They're, they're right. <clears throat> we know that. Go to verse 128. 128. <clears throat> Therefore, I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything, and I hate every false way. I esteem right. I, I see them as accurate. They are true. They are right. Now, if you're anything like me, there are many times where I read the Bible and I come across a command or something that God tells me to do. And I say, you know, I don't really like that. (laughs) I don't like doing that. I don't want to do that. I don't think that's the best way to go. Being a follower of Jesus, he is my master. I am his slave. He is my commander and I follow him as his disciple. So I have to say, you know what, God, I don't really like this, may, may not even agree with this, but you told me to do it. I need to do it. I need to do it. Now, while that is admirable and much better than not obeying God's word, it's not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is not mere obedience. The ultimate goal is to be able to see those commands for what they are, the best that God has in store for us. We often think God's just a cosmic killjoy and he's telling me things that I can't do or that I have to do just because he wants to stir up problems or make my life difficult or make me not have fun. But the reality is, every command God gives is for your greatest joy. He's giving you commands so that you can be the happiest person you can be. That's why he's giving commands. 
So while it is good to read a command and to go, oh, I don't like that, but I'm going to obey regardless. That's good, but that's not the best. I want to get to a place where I read God's word and I say, you know what? I don't, I don't like this command, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrestle with it to figure out why it is the best, why it does have my best interest in mind. Think about that for yourself. What is, what is something in your life that God has asked you to do that you have really struggled with? You've kicked against it. Maybe you've for a season sinned and said, I don't want to do that. Can you answer this question? Why does that command have your best interest in mind? How does that command give you the greatest joy? If you can't, you're going to struggle to keep it. You will. Your motivation will not be there. So God is not giving orders so that we would be restricted, that we would be miserable. God is giving orders because he loves us. He loves us and he wants our best. He wants us to be as happy as we possibly can be in him. And that leads to point number three. What do we need to believe about the Bible? It's true. It demands what's right. And number three, it provides what is good. It provides what is good. I'm just going to list these verses off. We won't have time to look at them all. Verses one through two. Um, you can write these down as, you, as we go through them. Verses one through two, God's word provides the way of happiness. If you live according to God's word, you will be the happiest person you can possibly be. It's not that it's easy, but it's simple and it's happy. Verse 6, God's word is the way to avoid shame. It provides the way to avoid shame. You want to live a life that is above reproach? How many, how many times do we think, boy, if only they knew this about me? they wouldn't be my friends. Or, oh, I need to guard this from them, and I can't let them know everything there is to know about me. If we walk rightly according to this book, we have no shame. We're an open book, above reproach. You can see whatever you want to see. Here's my life. It doesn't matter. There is no shame. It's been covered by the blood of Christ, and we live according to God's word. Verse 9, it provides a way of safety. It provides a way of safety. God gives us a way to be safe in this life, Keep his rules and don't fall under his judgment. Don't fall under um, the wicked counsel in Psalm 1 that leads you to terrible places, even in this life, not even in thinking about eternal uh, destinies. Verse 24, the way of good counsel. If you look at this book and look to this book, you will be provided with good counsel, the best counsel. Verse 28, it provides the way of strength. Verse 43, it provides the way of hope. Verses 98 through 100, it provides wisdom. And verse 105, it shows us the way to go. The list goes on and on and on, but Kevin DeYoung says it best. God's verbal revelation in spoken or written form is unfailingly perfect. As the people of God, we believe the word of God can be trusted in every way to speak what is true, command what is right, and provide us with what is good. Amen and amen. That's why we turn to this book. That's what we must believe about this book. Number two, what must we feel about this book, about the Word of God? Again, three fundamental affections that we must have pertaining to the Word of God. Number one, we must delight in the Word of God. We must delight in the Word of God. Um, you can write down verse 14, verse 24, Verse 47, verse 70, verse 77, verse 143, and verse 174. And if you don't get all that, you can listen to the tape. There are so many places in this chapter alone 
verse 103, he says that these are desirable, more desirable than honey, the sweetest thing that you could possibly think of. Honey's not that for me. Let's just be honest. Every time I come to that verse, I'm like, so what? Who cares? It's honey. Um, just think about the chocolatiest, chocolate, the, the most. I mean, this is like chocolate, 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 chocolate. That's me. I just chocolate everything. Um, whatever the sweetest thing is in your mind that you just love to savor, um, that's what the psalmist is talking about. Um, verse 111, the psalmist says that the, the words in this book are the joy of his heart. Verse 129, these words are wonderful to him as we already read. Now again, some of us might, might say, that's great for you, Patrick. You are a nerd and you love to read. I don't like to read. I've never really been excited about the Bible because I'm not an intellectual. I don't listen to sermons all day. I don't read all day like you. I'm not the sort of person who really delights in words. Give me something else. To which I would say, this may be true as a general rule. Maybe you don't like reading. Uh, I always tell people, you will have to come to grips with the Bible because God did choose to reveal himself in a book. Uh, That's for our good. He chose to reveal himself in a picture That doesn't have much explaining. We just all look at it from a different vantage point and we say, well, I think he means this. It's not instructive. Um, So you will have to come to grips with that. But I will also say this. I think you like words more than you think you do. I think you like words more than you think you do. I bet I, I would go on a limb and put down money to say that you actually do enjoy words. You'll get excited if you read something that would benefit you. Like maybe a will that says you've inherited a million dollars. If you don't read those words, you'll never know those words. But when you read those words, those words make you very glad. Maybe it's an acceptance letter that you've gotten to a college or to graduate level school. You're just, uh, you're you're excited. Um, I remember that, waiting for that uh, that envelope that I could see, oh, it was addressed to me, and it had this return address, and I opened it up. I got accepted. I was so excited. We also read carefully. I bet, I bet that you, before you attempt to do anything with electricity or an electrical current, I bet you will check to see if there's a warning label around it, wherever you are. That stuff just freaks me out. Uh, I went up onto my roof to try and fix my AC unit, And I just looked at it and went, I'm going to die. So better to be hot in my house than dead. Um, Let's just go ahead and go back downstairs. But you better believe I was reading all of the labels, trying to figure out where do I stick a screwdriver and where do I not? What am I doing? You will love to read about things that you love. Maybe it's the newspaper that you pick up to read, or maybe it's some e-newspaper now on your Kindle or your iPad. You will love to read about people that you love. Just think about Christmas. Christmas cards come every year. Those Christmas letters, just long letters about how the families are doing. Whenever we get those, that's an event at our house. We don't just go, oh, that's nice, and throw it away. We, we literally, this Christmas, we sat down and before family devotions, we would read the letter together, we would have family devotions, and then we would pray for the people in the letter that we just read. We're excited to hear about our friends, our family, how people are doing. To be sure, I don't want to discredit 
that the Bible can be very dull at times. It can feel dull. It can be dull. It can bore you. But the whole of the Bible is it's the greatest book ever written. The whole of the Bible. There is so much excitement in here if we would only just be careful to take a look. This book is filled with great benefits, better than getting a letter that says you've inherited a million dollars. This book is filled with bigger warnings than just being electrocuted by your AC unit. Uh, And this book is filled with uh, ultimately um, better people than we could love in in an eternal sense because this shares God and the person of Jesus Christ. Over and over, the psalmist describes his love for this book, and we should love it too. The flip side of that is found in verse 136. We, we saw it uh, in that first stanza that we read. My eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. So I love your law, and those who do not keep your law, they sadden me. Uh, verse 53, uh, when the wicked forsake the law, the, the psalmist is angry. Uh, verse 158, he looks on with disgust at the faithless and the disobedient. And that language sounds harsh to us, right? We don't look at people who don't love the word of God with disgust. That's pretty harsh. But I would say that's just an indication of how little we do treasure this book. If we treasured it the way that the psalmist treasured it, we would feel the same way that he feels. No one who truly delights in God's word can be indifferent to people who disregard it. Like if somebody came up to me and said, you know what, I think your wife is ugly. Look, I think my wife is beautiful, stunningly beautiful. And for you not to enjoy and see the preciousness and the beauty of what I enjoy and and what I see, who are you to say that? What's wrong with your eyes? Get them fixed. If somebody speaks out against and holds in little esteem what you prize and what you hold to be precious, you're going to struggle. You will struggle. So, do you delight in God's word? Number two, we must desire it. We must delight in it. This is how we're feeling about the word. We must delight in it. It must be our joy. And secondly, we must desire it. There are at least six times where the psalmist expresses his longing to keep the commands of God. There are at least 14 times in this chapter where he expresses a desire to know and understand the word. His desire for God's word motivates him. Uh, He says to get up early, to go to bed late. He's meditating on this book all the time. And again, we need to be honest with ourselves. That's why we do anything we do. Desire motivates us. Literally, the reason you got up is because of desire. You got up this morning because of a desire. I don't know what that desire is. It might have been to cherish the word of God, and I hope and pray it was. It might have been to hang out with friends, and that's fine too. It's not the best. I don't know why you got up. Maybe you didn't want people to think you were gone or or see that you were gone and give you a phone call. I don't know why. But the bottom line is, everything that we do, we do because of a desire. And so the psalmist says that my all-consuming desire is to know God. Therefore, I love his word and I must desire his word. That is the only place that I can truly know God and his word. So I ask, how strong is your desire for the word of God? If you orient your life around this book, everything will be different. And if you do not orient your life around this book, everything will be different. Do you desire this book? Thirdly, do you depend on this book? You must depend on this book. The psalmist is constantly aware of his need for the word. Verse 31, he clings to the testimonies that God gives. 
verse 50 and 52, he is desperate for the word. Amos 8, verse 11 says that there is a severe judgment that God is giving, and that judgment is a famine for the word of God. There is no more severe judgment that could be given to a people group than to take out the word of God. That is the worst calamity, the silence of God. We cannot know anything rightly pertaining to life, to faith, to godliness, to God himself apart from knowing the scriptures. We must know the scriptures. So what we believe and what we feel about the word of God is absolutely important. Why is it important? Can I just give you one main reason why it's important? Because it mirrors what we believe and what we feel about Jesus. Jesus unequivocally believed that all that was written in the scriptures was true, was right. And if we are to be his disciples, we need to believe the same. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ and you play fast and loose with, the, with his word, you have to question, where is your allegiance? Is it to the word of God or is it to your own authority? So, if these things are true about God's word, it's right, it demands it's right, it's true, um, it's for our good, we must delight in it, desire it, we must do what it tells us to do, we must depend on it, then what should we do? Number three, what should we do? Let me just give you a couple things. We need to sing it. Verse 172. We need to sing it. Verse 172. We need to speak it. A bunch of verses. I have ten verses for speaking it. We need to study it. I have five verses for studying it. We need to store it up, memorize it, meditate on it. We need to obey it. There's 13 verses for obeying it. We need to praise God for it. We need to pray that God would act according to it. There are so many things we must do, and that's exactly what we're going to look at next week. Okay, we're going to look at the application of this sermon next week. How we are to live in light of God's word. Now, all of these actions, singing, speaking, studying, storing it up, obeying it, praising God for it, those are not a substitute for genuine saving faith. Those aren't, like if you check those things off, you get yourself saved. That's not true. But they are one of the best indicators that you have saving faith. Um, If you claim to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and you do none of these things, that's an indicator that maybe it's just a profession, but it's not a reality. Donald Whitney says, No spiritual discipline is more important than the intake of God's word. Nothing can substitute for it. There is simply no healthy Christian life apart from a diet of the milk and meat of Scripture. And if we would know God and be godly, we must know the word of God intimately. We must know it intimately. Um, That is something that we desire here at CBC. Uh, John Blanchard said it this way, Surely we only have to be realistic and honest with ourselves to know how regularly we need to turn to the Bible. How often do we face problems? How often do we face temptations and pressures? Every day. Then how often do we need instruction, guidance, and greater encouragement? Every day. To catch all these needs up into an even greater issue, how often do we need to see the face of God, hear his voice, feel his touch, know his power? The answers to all these questions is the same every day. As the American evangelist D.L. Moody put it, a man can no more take in a supply of grace for the future than he can eat enough for the next six months or take sufficient air into his lungs at one time to to sustain life for a week. We must draw upon God's boundless store of grace from day to day as we need it. We need to find the time. We need to make the time. If you listen to the Bible on CD straight through, you can read 
listen, to the entire Bible in 71 hours. The average person in the United States watches that much television in less than two weeks. You have to find the time, you have to make the time. In more than 15 minutes, in no more than 15 minutes a day, you can read through the Bible in less than a year. Only five minutes a day can take you through the whole Bible in less than three years. You can do it. Do you depend on it? Do you desire it? Do you delight in it? Do you have a reading plan? Are you diving into God's word? R.C. Sproul says it so well. Here then is the real problem of our negligence in reading the scriptures. We fail in our duty to study God's word, not so much because it is difficult to understand, even though it is sometimes, not so much because it is dull and boring, even though it can be at sometimes, but simply because it is work. Our problem is not a lack of intelligence or a lack of passion. Our problem is simply that we are lazy. Do you find the time and do you make the time to be with God? So I was saying, what more can he say than to you he has said? There is no more revelation we need. We have it here. He has spoken clearly. Let's go to him together. You say, oh, I've tried. I've tried and just nothing seems to be working. I'm not changing. I'm not growing. Jeffrey Thomas, I think, will help us. Do not expect to master the Bible in a day or a month or a year. Rather, expect often to be puzzled by its contents. Good. (laughs) Check. Expect to be puzzled. What is this? It's not all equally clear. Great men of God often feel like absolute novices when they read the word. The Apostle Peter even said that there were some things hard to understand in the epistles of Paul. I am glad he wrote those words because I have felt that often. So do not expect always to get an emotional charge or a feeling of quiet peace when you read the Bible. By the grace of God, you may expect that to be a frequent experience, but often you will get no emotional response at all. Let the word break over your heart and your mind again and again as the years go by. And imperceptibly, there will come great changes in your attitude and your outlook and your conduct. You will probably be the last one to recognize these. Often you will feel very, very small because increasingly the God of the Bible will become to you wonderfully great. So go on reading it until you can read no longer. And then you will not need the Bible anymore because when your eyes close for the last time in death, you will open them to the word of God in the flesh. That same Jesus of the Bible whom you have known for so long standing before you to take you forever to his eternal home. Brothers and sisters, if you treasure and cherish this book, I promise you, money back guarantee, I promise you, you will not be disappointed. It will lead you in wisdom. It will lead you in truth. It will lead you in safety. It will lead you in a loving relationship with Jesus. Treasure this book above any delight this world can offer. And I promise you, you will never, ever regret it. God, I thank you for your word. And I pray that you would make us men and women who delight in it, who desire it, who depend upon it, because it is trustworthy, it is good, it tells us what is right, and it helps us live in accordance with your will, which is for our greatest joy. So may we walk with you even now, as sons and daughters of the Most High King, clinging to your word, every promise of your word is faithful and sure. Thank you for speaking. Thank you for not leaving us alone in our own devices. Thank you for loving us tangibly in that way and bringing us to yourself through Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen.